you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. LAist Studios. Anger, sadness, disappointment. Uh, We really thought we could make a deal. What we're asking for is fair. And... They just didn't want to make a deal with us. Welcome, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. That's Daylin Rodriguez. She is on the board of directors for the Writers Guild of America West. She's also the co-showrunner of the Netflix series, The Lincoln Lawyer. She was speaking directly from the picket lines this week. Today on the show, we bring you the latest news from the first WGA strike in 15 years. As writers and other industry creatives in solidarity, join the fight for better pay and better working conditions. And later, Emma Thompson has a new film out, and I talked to her about why she finds roles as a 60-something woman are so much more interesting, about how being kind is a revolutionary act, and the impact of stories on society. But first, to the people who are writing those stories. The strike is on. And to recap, streaming has brought in billions of dollars, but the nearly 12,000 members of the Writers Guild of America say they aren't seeing the benefits. So they're asking for a raise in minimum pay, longer terms of employment, 10 weeks at least, higher residuals, especially for work on successful streaming shows. The negotiators for film and TV studios and streamers say those demands are unreasonable and too costly. Here's Adam Conover. He's a WGA board member and host of Adam Ruins Everything, explaining the issues to Nick Roman on Elias 89.3. The bigger issue is that the companies, the studios and the streamers are trying to erode the career of television and film writing. They're trying to turn it into gig work, as so many other companies have turned their jobs into gig work. And uh, they're doing that through a lot of different means. We're fighting back against all of them by going on strike. He also addressed the issue of mini rooms, which is a huge point of contention in the negotiations. It's where, for example, a couple of writers spend maybe three months creating the entire season of a streaming show, as opposed to, say, 10 writers having eight months to do the same thing. Those writers then don't stay on the job when the show goes into production, and they aren't around when it's being edited and completed, unlike the way it used to be. 
So they've broken the pipeline by which writers become better writers and become television producers as well. Uh, and the result is increasing precarity and the conversion of writing as being, again, a stable middle-class profession that 10,000 members did to one that is really turning into Uber driving for content. This is Caitlin Fontana, who writes for TV and radio with a focus on queer storytelling. If you're not born rich, if you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you can't actually ascend through the ranks of this industry anymore. And it's really interesting that all of that has coincided with the biggest influx of people of color, of people from different backgrounds and nationalities, of queer people um, that we've ever seen in this industry. So it does feel a little pointed that we're at this inflection point, at the point where we are switching over to a time of more beautiful stories told in more different ways than ever before, and yet there are more and more chokeholds on who can tell those stories and how long they can stay in this business. Fontana blames the consolidation of media companies in service to profits and Wall Street. What we're doing now is we're saying we have to keep earning more and more and more money. And instead of that falling on the executives who make billions and billions of dollars a year, it falls on us as writers, it falls on the below the line workers, it falls on everybody else who works in this industry to have to prop up the Wall Street dollars. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is the bargaining entity for film and TV studios and streamers, has been silent through much of the negotiations. On Thursday, they issued a statement disputing many of the WGA claims, specifically saying that prescribed staffing levels and terms of employment are, quote, incompatible with the creative nature of our industry, unquote. They also said that they have been paying writers more and that they are offering the highest first-year general wage increase in more than 25 years. It's easy to see this dispute as a fight between the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. It isn't. It's actually about the entire industry. In fact, the Writers Guild staged a rally on Wednesday night. The heads of every top Hollywood guild were also in attendance, which is unprecedented. The Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the Teamsters, they were all there. The Screen Actors Guild contract comes up for renewal June 30th, as does the Directors Guild of America contract. So every other Hollywood guild is in this fight, even if they're not currently on strike. Later on the show, we talk to an art director whose credits include Black Panther Wakanda Forever. She has been out of work for six months already as the industry put on the brakes ahead of Monday strike. So how will these below-the-line workers navigate more months of a production standstill? But after the break, Dame Emma Thompson. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. 
Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. Welcome back. You know Emma Thompson. Uh, decades of movies. They include Sense and Sensibility, Nanny McPhee, Love Actually, I Could Go On. She's back on the big screen with a film called What's Love Got to Do With It? Spoiler, it is not the Tina Turner life story. Instead, it's a movie that asks the question, how do you find lasting love in today's world? The movie follows a documentary filmmaker who's played by Lily James. Her next movie is about her Pakistani childhood neighbor's arranged marriage, or as the film calls it, assisted marriage. Thompson plays Kath. She's the filmmaker's mother, and while she is very close to her Pakistani neighbors, she often is blithely unaware of her unconscious bias. Thompson explained to me how she came to be involved in this project. Well, it began a long time ago because J- Jemima's been writing it for 10 years. And um, I know Eric Fellner very well for working title. He kept saying, oh, Em, will you come and do? It's just a small role, you know, but just could, could you please come and do it? And for a long time, it just wasn't there. I thought it was a great idea. Arranged marriage, fascinating. Also, you know, the Pakistani um, diaspora here and being represented as, you know, family people rather than, you know, potential terrorists every single time you saw anybody with a brown skin. That was really attractive. And the fact that Jemima had lived herself through all of this uh, fascinating history and a fascinating woman. And then suddenly, um, two years ago, the script landed again and Eric said, she's done a lot of work on it. I think you're going to love it. And I did. I really did. I thought it was very funny and very charming and um, I had a lot to say, but in a very light way, had a very light touch. And I thought the character of Kath was was very attractive because she's such sort of an idiot, really, but <laughs> in 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 a, in a fairly um, benign way. She's so tactless, um, but not in a cruel way and, and certainly not in a kind of underlying not really liking these people where she actually loves um her neighbors you know her pakistani neighbors really loves them and and accepts that and is really appreciative of the fact that they've accepted her as one of their family and she you know she probably wouldn't have survived or she'd certainly her family would be alcoholics anonymous if it weren't for this extraordinary lot next door but i would say that that the character seems to try and maybe not quite always succeed. And let's just talk about her neighbors. This, this idea of trying to be the good neighbor and understand somebody else's culture and life, but not quite understand her own, as we call it, unconscious bias. That there's so many people like this, and, and I'm one of them, that the way that, that we might try our hardest, but we're so guided by you know, what it is that, that lies beneath. No, absolutely. <laughs> She's, you're absolutely right. She has, she's deeply unconsciously biased and she's constantly culturally inappropriate and just taking stuff and going, oh God, isn't this lovely? It's also colorful. 
I mean, she really will use words like exotic and colourful and what and all of that. So, yeah, you either sort of absolutely hate that kind of thing and can't bear to watch it, or like me, you're someone who's witnessed it so many times. And funnily enough, she reminded me of the very first comic character that I played when I was actually 14 years old which was actually based on Lenny Bruce's How to Relax Your Coloured Friends at Parties. She was called the Hampstead Hostess, and she was tremendously proud of the fact that she had um, a a black person of colour, a black person at her cocktail party. And this was what the sketch was actually about. And this was 50, no, not even kidding, 50 years ago, half a century ago. I thought, oh my God, she's exactly like that person that I played on stage as a character when I was 14 years old and nothing's changed. And the stories and characters that typically get thrown to somebody your age, which is kind of the the wife, the boring wife, I'll, I'll call her. Um, so we know what you like to say yes to, but there's also a lot of things that you say no to. And I think your no's almost define your yeses better than your yeses do. Does that make sense? A great way of putting it. Really, really great. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Although, interestingly, um, I find that I've been offered and, and, and written for in such an interesting way since I hit sort of 50, really, 55. The roles I've had, I think, have been more interesting than the ones I was being offered and indeed sometimes played in my 40s. So that's interesting that somehow I've moved into it. I mean, I'm working so hard at the moment and so many things are coming in that are so interesting so but but that's i mean i'm lucky because i'm established and i don't know whether that's true of you know other women my age i think that that sort of state of invisibility that veil um drops pretty um heavily uh at, at exactly the age you're referring to yeah absolutely it, it you know the fact that I have never been, I suppose, the romantic lead has helped a bit because now people don't mind offering me character roles that say a crone of unsettling aspect enters the room and I go, yes, yes, please, I'd love that. There is an expression that I love in politics, which is don't tell me what your values are. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what your values are. And I think you could I think you can say the same thing about an actor or a filmmaker or producer. Don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your filmography and I'll tell you what your priorities are. If that were the case for you, what would that filmography say about your priorities? Um, I think it would obviously be clear that I was interested in playing um, that women of, of, of character um, that I never lent towards. Well, I mean, certainly didn't do the kind of wife, the wifely roles that were endlessly on offer when I was in my 40s, which were the don't go do the brave thing, um, stay here with us at home. It was a real trope. In the, I suppose, 90s or 80s, 90s, there were loads of roles like that, which were sort of supportive female roles, but that basically were saying to the men, and I mean, actually, they still exist in exactly the same way in things like um, Mission Impossible. You know, there's there's the woman has to be protected, and so he goes off and 
but then it's made up for by the fact that there's always a woman who's doing all the kick-ass stuff. The person I talk to a lot about women's roles is Lindsay Duran, who is the producer as you, uh, of Mickle Knight, as you, and you know of her and her work. She used her, to run United Heroes. Yeah, she's very interesting about um, what writers are being told now about women's roles. So, for instance, women have got to be badass. You know, they can't be, you, you can't have a woman crying anymore. You know, the men have to do the crying and the women have to do the kicking. And, you know, actually you could just take a, a man's name out and put a woman's name in and, and that's it, job done. But just really interesting what's happened that in our, in this journey towards making stories that actually do represent women's lives and what women's are thinking about what they're doing, who they are, um, we're just barking up the same old trees, only it's women barking. And and it's so boring. It's so boring. God. I mean, the, the saving the world thing is just, it's endless, endless. I can't believe they've made Spider-Man this many times and Batman. And I, it's just strange, you know, that we keep on making the same bloody stories. Last night, Vin Diesel from Fast and Furious went on for 10 minutes about the message that Fast and Furious sends into the world. And I was like, I don't know what message that is, that cars can fly, uh, <laughs> that the bigger your arms are, the better a person you are. I don't know what that message is. That said, are there things that you hope people take away you know, from Nanny McPhee or the movie you're doing now? Do you think there's a consistent idea of how audiences might be changed by the stories that you like to tell. Yeah, I think I don't think that's changed. I mean, my experience last year of selling um, this movie, which people are so, particularly our Asian audience, you know, they're just so grateful to be properly represented in in all their human reality um, instead of being somehow co-opted into a kind of villainous role because of our of our unconscious biases and our racism and matilda gives children so much power it puts the emphasis so much on their agency and at a time when their agency is so um beleaguered by social media where they're so sort of caught up in something that is is dangerously i mean ridiculously unregulated you know there's more regulations around the development of a new sandwich for press and manger than there is around, for instance, a new uh, AI. I mean, the AI thing is a whole other 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 business. But but you know, the deregulation of everything in relation to young people means that they need these stories more than ever, and that people, certainly in this country, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but the the kind of unraveling of the liberal consensus means that stories that have emphasized compassion and kindness communication and however difficult it might be that are of are, are light but somehow have depth these stories have to be told more and more and more and i think that i could i certainly my priority now is to make sure that whatever i do put out into the world is what i consider to be philosophically, emotionally, socially, societally useful and supportive and kind, particularly kind, because the death of compassion and kindness in my own country, in the governmental level and the level of debate, um, which is so so profoundly low, has to be 
that that vacuum has to be filled somewhere. And at the moment, it's being filled by artists. You said a version of that recently in The New Yorker, which is whatever I do now, it has to serve the happiness of people. It has to uplift. I think that's my job. But there's a fine line between that and what we'll call Hollywood endings, that life isn't always tidy and neat. And that sometimes, without spoiling this movie, the guy and the girl don't end up together. So at what point are you selling fantasy? And at what point do you think you need to sell reality? I don't think that making people happy is is um, a function of a Hollywood ending. Hollywood endings are lazy, formulaic, and so forth. So that's not what I'm talking about at all. The films I made were not remotely Hollywood endings, nor were they, you know, um, not at all. It's it's meaningful, um, uplifting in terms. I mean, in the same way as Shakespeare's uplifting. But you don't say, well, he's uplifting, and therefore empty. You mustn't conflate the word happiness and the words uplifting and it with a kind of the pabulum of of a Hollywood ending. I, I find formula endings um, very depressing, actually. Um, the, the great endings are the ones that are, have a kind of bittersweet quality that leave you with that sense that you one always has in life. It's just what, who knows what's around the corner and whatever happiness you know you're you're experiencing it will come to an end and um and whilst that's very difficult to believe when you're young you always think that things are going to last forever and then they don't you know in the end that's that's what forms you that's what creates hum- your your humanity that's what you know it's the forge and and stories can be like that forge they can really challenge you in all sorts of ways and and you might think at the end of something really quite well, on the face of it, depressing. Um, you you go, but I feel so much better because I've been I've been somewhere that was very real and that I could really connect to, and I felt seen. I've been thinking about fairy tales a lot as well, um, obviously because of the nanny wet feet connection, but also just because of fairy tales, which of course um, were the opposite of Hollywood endings. Fairy tales had very very dark endings. That then Hollywood took and made happy. Interesting, isn't it? It is. We took the darkness and we and we made it, we made it um, more palatable. I wonder if it's time to go back to those darker tales. Good luck with the film, and thank you so much for your time. Lovely to see you. What's love got to do with it is out in theaters now. Coming up, an art director paints a picture of what this past year has been like as production grinded to a halt in anticipation of the Writers Guild strike. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. 
this is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah. I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. What is an art director to do without a film or TV set to art direct? Well, they can make their home look amazing. I Zoomed with Kedra Dawkins. You might know her work. Her credits include Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Her living room was bright with lush plants. Everything in the frame looked perfect. Her mood was hopeful, but the realities of the work stoppage loomed as she discussed the impact of months without work ahead of the expiration of the Writers Guild contract. When you say you've worked in the business 15 years, you probably started right around the time the last writer's strike either was just about to wrap up or was underway because it started in late 07 and went into early 08. Do you have any recollection of whether or not there was a strike when right. you started? So 2007, 2008, like I was, I was finishing up with my college years at Cal Poly Pomona. I was studying theatrical design there. And, and I remember the strike beginning. There were other things going on in, in the world as well uh, for, for people that were graduating at that time. And it was really tough to, sort of navigate and see what the industry would look like when we weren't graduating. I did have um, a couple of internships on some TV shows and um, I worked on, you know, in some film festivals and things like that. So I was beginning my career around that time and it definitely was uncertain and I didn't really have full support of my parents. In fact, I hadn't even told them that I was studying theatrical design and wanting to be a filmmaker um, because my parents are immigrants. They came from Panama. And, you know, as most immigrant parents are, they're very like uh, strict and they want you to, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer, all the other things and um, to be successful. And they just uh, wanted me to have a solid backup plan but after an internship with the city, I realized that I didn't really want a desk job. I wanted to express my creativity and I felt that that was where my purpose was. I, I don't know. I think I'm, everybody's sort of yeah. discovering it still. Are you able to make a living as uh, working in art direction? And is it freelance? Do you go from job to job? Do you have a production designer with whom you work typically? How does your year play out in terms of finding work and being able to, I don't know, make your mortgage, pay your rent, put food on the table, whatever it is? It has been different every year of my career, and it has been difficult in many different ways. Um, a lot of it has been working a job here and there and then getting uh, word of mouth referrals um, to the next one um, and eventually getting a, a great job that will lead to a, a better job that leads to a better job. And so in my experience, it really has just been maintaining relationships 
and navigating relationships within the industry that can get me that next better job. Most of us work freelance. um, And that's just the way that I've sort of known to uh, move, move up in the career. And my understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that within a guild like IATSE, you get health insurance if you hit a certain minimum number of, I don't know if it's hours or income, but if you don't work enough, you don't get health insurance. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. After, I think, I want to say six months, or I don't really know exactly the amount of time. I just know that it's been about six months since I've been out of work and many others have been out of work. Um, and uh, there is a threat to our health insurance after a certain period of time. During the pandemic, um, Motion Picture Health put a stay on on the amount of hours that can be banked for um, what's needed for us to be able to maintain our health insurance. Um, it's difficult to say whether we're going to be able to keep our insurance. I think most of us are, are going to lose it. Wow. I want to ask you about this six months. Now, let's stipulate you've got some very good credits. You worked on a little movie called Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, And when somebody who has that kind of credit struggles to get work, it sounds like there's something else going on. And have your peers noticed the same thing? What have you heard anecdotally and what has happened to you about jobs you typically might have gotten that don't seem to be materializing? What I have heard is that there, it, there's been a little bit of a slowdown. Um, productions are not starting up until later in the year. Um, and it's just because the producers are sort of waiting to see what happens or they're just, I don't know if it's, they're sort of squeezing us to make everyone feel uncomfortable enough for the writers to to make the decision that in their favor. It's it's definitely had a huge impact. I have a friend who has decided to work in a different industry altogether. I have another friend who um, is struggling with health insurance and and navigating that world of it. And myself, I mean, it's it, I'm I'm looking at um six months out of work at this point. This is longer than I have than I was out during the pandemic. And I spoke with um, an agent yesterday who says a lot of her clients are out of work. They've been out of work for a while. There are people that she didn't imagine um, being out of work, out of work at this point. And from my perspective, I don't know that I know enough about what's you know, the ins and outs of what's going on. I just know that I've been impacted. My friends have been impacted, my colleagues, and um, I'm not hearing that there's anything starting up until potentially June. Wow. Potentially. So let me ask you this, and it might be a difficult question. You have gone six months without work. You talked about a friend who has quit the business because they're not able to make a living. Um, At what point do you find yourself in a financial crisis? Six months out of work is half a year. That is a long time without income. So how would you describe your own financial security right now? So I worked on Black Panther Wakanda Forever um, right around the beginning of 2021. And 
I've been able to make enough money up to cover me during this six month period. And I think I can definitely make it until June. Um, I'm not sure that I can make it through the end of the year. So, um, but that being said, I'm, I'm optimistic. The Directors Guild of America told its members that they are forbidden to honor a picket line. They are contractually obligated to go to work, even if that means crossing a picket line. I don't know if IA has sent a note to its members, but people like you might be in a very interesting moral dilemma where you need to go to work and there's a picket. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, IA doesn't say one way or the other whether or not you can or cannot cross that picket line. Have you thought about that kind of choice that you have to make about honoring somebody else's picket or running out of money? Because it might actually come to that. I personally, as a union member, I don't feel comfortable with crossing a picket line because I do believe that it compromises um, what we stand for. And so I wouldn't do it. And I know that there are other ways to sustain myself if it does come to that. Um, There are many, many reasons why we collect as union members and support each other. And so I think that that, um, that has to stand for something. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how the strike is affecting you. So go to the story on Elias.com and our show notes for a link on how to share your story. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman, who is also my session director. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And special thanks to Josie Wong for her reporting from the WGA Picket Lines. Listeners like you help make Retake possible, so please donate now at elias.com forward slash join. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.